0: Let me talk you through the two most emotional stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I wanna talk You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never going to happen.
1: I don't know if this is going to be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this
2: job. Like, it's like you you get given a hand of cards and, like, you have to do the best with
1: what you have. Someone might have been watching watching down on me.
0: Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same like oh you know jack i've got this idea you know what about this i just my first thought was my god no i don't even care if anyone like listens to this you know if i take one key takeaway from every recording i'll be such a better at this is no big deal the sales podcast Welcome back to series two of the No Big Deal podcast with me, Jack Nico, and Jack Fox. And we are very excited to welcome our next guest, Ollie Smith from Jewel. Now, with almost 15 years of sales experience, Ollie has been there, seen it, and almost completed and done it all. With a mix of new business, account management, and leadership experience, Ollie actually started out in door to door sales in Australia for two years. He then moved into the IT space out in Australia before returning to the UK to work in the creative and brand world. In his career, Ollie has set the sales record wherever he's been for the biggest deal sold. I mean, he has to be on no big deal with that claim. He's 5x revenue at Jewel in two years, and he's ran a business with a team of 80 door-to-door reps when he was 21 in Australia. Definitely need to dig into that (laughs) in a bit. Thanks so much, Ollie, for joining
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
2: Top man, Ollie. Thanks for joining us, mate. I've got a quick question to kick us off. Mm. You've you've obviously closed a lot of deals. You've got a seriously good CV there. Can you tell us what's the most important part of a a big deal at the start? When you're starting off and you you think, I'm going to build a big deal around this, what's the key ingredient that you look for?
1: That's a really good question. I think for me is taking a step back and actually analyzing what the actual opportunity is. Um, I think we can all see... I think something that every salesperson either does or has done in their career is see something shiny in the grass and want to run directly towards it um, and then sort of have those blinkers on so that for me whenever that opportunity exists is to yeah take a couple of step back sink it in think about it like don't rush do it properly
2: so like seeing the size of the prize not just the not just the glitter
1: exactly so yeah. as
2: as t- as into
1: and if you think about how that sales process is then going to set up the long term relationship with that client as well, you know, like you've got to obviously hand this over to a customer success team. You want to grow the account. You want to ensure the account uh, renews and is going to be a, a good advocate for you um, out in the market as well. So I think being able to take those step backs and, and really understand the size, not just the size of the opportunity, but what the brand or what the company themselves is looking for um, early on is really gonna shape your entire sales process and then that's gonna set the precedent for the rest of the relationship that you have with that client moving forward as well. Do
0: you know what's so interesting about that Jack? And I think that's a massive difference when we go and speak to you know frontline sales reps of um, like seed or series A back companies versus like us with our experience before working at like a post series C and D, where generally it was like growth at any cost. Just sell, like sell, 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 sell any deals. Whereas like Ollie has to think about, okay, Is this really in our ICP? Are we going to be able to deliver value to this customer? Is this going to be a long-serving customer, which actually is going to shape the way that all of these big, massive growth series funding-backed companies will have to reverse back to, like, to stop? churn?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've said the same thing as well. Like, the... the the What's the best word to describe? The constraints on the deals that we sell now are far more tight because we have to see that the customer's going to outlive our... CAC payback. We have to see that the customer is going to have room for growth in white space. We have to see that the customer is going to be a good advocate. We have to see that the customer is going to make the onboarding process easy for our side and not be a constant thorn in the side. Like the the concept of selling a deal to a customer now is far more about the actual total contract length as opposed to getting a transaction done. So Ollie, on that note, can you tell us about the start of this deal, Like the details of the start of this deal that made you think, OK, this isn't just a shiny object. This is actually something that we can go and do good business with.
0: And also as well, on top of that, Ollie, give us like a quick description of, of Jewel and like what you do.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, so Jewel, look, we, we are um, brand advocacy um, software. We help brands in the fashion and beauty space power social commerce. So what social commerce is, is not people buying through social media platforms, but people being influenced to make purchasing decisions through what they see on social media. So what we essentially do is work with brands to help them identify a pool of advocates, people that genuinely love their brand, that have social influence to be able to go and promote, um, to make their, promote their brand and deliver advocacy, um, in different ways. So it's kind of like the anti-influencer brigade, the old school way of thinking of, of humans promoting your brand used to be, oh, let's pay someone lots of money because they've got a big following to promote our brand. It does nothing for your brand. No one cares about it. Um, people care about human interaction, um, Gen Z care about what people that look like them are doing and buying, and um, so we just help brands do that at scale essentially uh, but yeah, going back to the start of this deal, well actually it would be way before the deal even started um we we as a as a company you know we've come from you know when I started fifteen people scrappy we're all doing lots of different things um to now being uh, what I call a real company um, two years later with uh, with, with great clients. Um, obviously, for us, you know, our ICP, getting in front of these bigger, more referenceable brands is, is obviously a lot more difficult when you are that brand new um, thing that, that nobody really knows about. Um, so we had a, a pretty clear strategy in place to try and get those logos towards us through partners. Again, through good partners, you've got to BD them in order for you to become trusting and referenceable, because it's their reputation that they're putting on the line if they're obviously introducing you. So it was was more my CEO than me that that started that relationship, but spent a couple of years working very closely, um, well, BDing essentially these partners based in the States, um, who essentially know the CEOs of every major brand and retailer in America, can't even like explain the significance of these people and, and who they know through their background in finance. Um, so I had to get them on board because they, we, we were aware that they were the key to getting introductions into these brands. So actually, that's where it started was a couple of years of hard BDing a partner in order to get introductions into, into any of the major brands in the States.
2: That's mad, isn't it? Because that business model is so different to the business model of cold outreach plus trying to get inbound leads. But arguably, it's far more effective with longevity. Because the partnership ecosystem just continues to serve you once it's in place. Whereas like the BD ecosystem is just like a one and done kind of system. You have to just keep rinsing and repeating it. And if the world dries out, the world dries up.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And we, we, the, the deal I'm, I'm talking about today, we were BDing heavily, that, that organization, um, across our business getting absolutely nowhere, um, through that. And then one email from this partner into the CEO of this business meant a reply within an hour. And a meeting set up another hour later with the CMO and the marketing leadership suite for us to present to. And it's amazing how
0: crazy referrals, aren't they? <laughs> Man. I'm sure like I should probably know some stuff off the top of my head, given uh, what I sell about, like the effectiveness of referral emails. But I know it's like a stupid level X of replying, especially when you start like an email with like. Referred by Jack Fox, do you know what I mean? It's Can like, i him, bang.
2: Can I just say the biggest deal I've ever sold, Jack, your contacts referred me into the deal. Do you remember we were in the office oh, yeah. in the WeWork we and I was like, does anybody know so-and-so? You were like, I know that person. Come over here and we'll write an email. And the person intro me and we had a call the next day. I was like, bingo. Ollie, um, can you tell us not the exact contents of the email? It doesn't need to be the exact details, but there's lots of people listening to this who are like, I need to get high in accounts. I need to get referrals into accounts. I need to sound credible. I need to eloquently explain what my product does. Can you tell us a little bit about like maybe be the framework or the strategy behind what was in that email to get the attention and deliver like the idea of what the value of of Jewel does?
1: There was nothing in the email. Um, It essentially said, hi, CEO, (laughs) hope you're well. I know this really cool company over in London called Jewel. They're great for you activating your passionate customers. I'm not even going to say anymore because I don't want to butcher it. Over to you. That was it simple
0: how easy is simple, that oh so simple well, that is like that is it
1: of course but i think the what's interesting and particularly when you're thinking about c-suite is c-suite don't care about your technology they don't care about how it works no. they care about what problem it's going to solve for them and this introducer knew that this this company that we're, we're talking about today wanted to be able to uh, engage more closely with their advocates Okay. That's the CEO's way of thinking. The CEO doesn't care about the features and benefits of Joe; they care about the problem it's going to solve. So, actually, that is the best way to pitch them. Because if you send them a, an email with eight bullet points about why your technology is so great, they're not—they don't care. They're not going to read that.
2: Say it louder for the people yeah, at the that, back. Clip yeah. it, share it, it, snip it. Rima, are you listening? That <laughs> is going on the reels.
0: <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, Ollie. You got the intro to the person you wanted, and as a bit of context for listeners, you told me that, like the CEO replied, relatively quickly.
1: Yep, um, cc'd in. I think it's the CMO and their assistant. I was then sent a load of times when you guys free to meet. Um, funnily enough, we bent over backwards to get in front of the CMO. Of, this is a multi-billion-dollar, you know, massive fashion brand that everyone knows. Um, so yeah, we bent over backwards to get on that call and yeah, they they invited basically the, the the leadership suite across marketing um to that initial call and it happened sort of within about a week, really.
0: Now tell us what happened on that first call.
1: Um it was quite interesting because for for us, so this this call happens it was probably about a year ago now. Um we'd obviously been pitching some larger organizations, but hadn't really been in this situation where people had no idea who we were coming into this call, absolutely none whatsoever. And it was less of a a discovery kind of call and more of a, hey, look, this is who we are. This is what we do. Do you like it? Maybe if you like it, you'll answer some questions and we might be able to qualify and discover blah, blah, blah. Um, So got on the call, Uh, we we created a deck for the call. We didn't have one before. Um, I brought my CEO um, and my head of strategy onto the call. for obvious reasons and um, to, to mirror the people that were on the call from the brand side, but we built out decks. We were like, well, we don't actually know how to do this. We've not really done it before. So it's very much sort of this introduction initially to, to what Joel believes in brand advocacy and what the power of it was. And then a little bit about engaging with, with your advocates and how to drive value from them. And, um, about 10, 15 minutes in, um, my two champions sort of put their hands over their eyes and dropped their heads and like, looked really stressed. And I was like, being the quite um, human, I guess, person that I am was like, oh, sorry, am I talking total nonsense here? Do you absolutely hate this? And they turned around and said, no, I didn't know you guys existed. We're one year into a five-year plan to actually build our own software to do exactly what you do. Oh, God. Um, yeah. So that was... That's never happened to me in my career ah. or um and may well never happen again um. Talk about product market fit, though. Jesus Christ! Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there was like my CEO was like, "Yes, you know, my vision, <laughs> my, my visions." Wrong. Yeah, my vision.
2: Yeah, I am a pioneer. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, <laughs> I'm making it sound like we didn't have any good clients for this. We have loads of great clients, for you VNA. know, just um, especially the American market was something that we'd not spent much time, uh, spent much time developing. So, um, yeah, that was that was really funny and really caught me off guard. I. Like I said, I've never had that experience on a sales call before.
2: Interestingly, how do you, what, what, can I just hit, ask what, what did you say next? Because I would I, that would put me on the back foot a little bit. Because I'd be like, "All right, cool. These people are on my side. I don't want to embarrass them in front of their boss." Now, you kind of want to take that conversation offline and say, "How do we approach this to your boss going forward?" So, wh- how do you handle that on the fly?
1: Yeah, that was really interesting. I think I probably said um about eight times while I was working out what it was I needed to say next. But I think. Um, I think for us it was like okay, don't don't go off kilter. Keep doing what you're doing. Like I'd spent a lot of time, obviously, preparing for this call for the different stakeholders on that call. Obviously, I didn't know these people. I wasn't able to speak to specific objectives for those individuals, but I had obviously knowing the different types of marketers and what is relevant to them on a sort of you know fairly good level from from my experience. Um, I was like, okay, we're just going to keep going. Uh, we're just going to keep going here because. I did. To be honest, I didn't know what to do. Um, so all I could do was continue to deliver the information about Jewel. And if at the end of the call or halfway through they cut me off and said, do "You know what, Ollie, thanks so much. This is clearly great because we're doing it ourselves, but we're not interested. Uh, we're not interested." Then fine. Um, and again, like you say, product market fit probably would have taken that on and used it as a story in a number of other. How did
0: you, Ollie, after that?
1: You know what the important thing is, and with any of these big deals.
0: It's all about de-risking it for the customer of, like, making a change. So they're already committed. They've already done a fifth of the work of building something in-house to solve a challenge which Jewel solved for. How did you work with your champions to, first of all, I don't know, come between, like, a bit of a tail between their legs to say, like, we didn't know this company existed. We could have just bought with them. And also then de-risk it for those people and senior management to think, we've got to can this project, we're just going to buy.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a really good question, Jack. So obviously I, from that call, from that initial call, I was able to identify the two key champions that I were going to have based on the fact that they were running this project and and their roles and responsibilities within this company. Um, so essentially went through the call, answered loads of questions to the, the CMO, much more focused around our strategy, used people far smarter and more intelligent than me to, to answer those questions in my, CEO, uh, my head of strategy. Um, and then essentially, yeah, towards the end of the call, identifying those two, um, champions and saying, Hey, um, love to set up another call and we can show you a little bit more how it works. Maybe that can, um, support you guys on what you do with the idea being is that then, okay, cool. Firstly, if they're doing it themselves, yeah, they've, they've seen our technology now, if we can find some way of potentially working together one day. Great, these are very influential people at a huge organization. Maybe we can learn from them as well and they can introduce us to people. So, so that was the first thing I really did was like, okay, I need to take these champions away from this core group of people to have a conversation with them. At this stage, I don't know whether there's an opportunity here or not. I really don't know. I need to get them on a call where they haven't got their leadership all on it so that they might speak a little bit more openly and a little bit more freely. And I can have more of a conversation with them to actually do a little bit more discovery and understanding. So the way that I went about doing that was really focusing on the problem that they were trying to solve by building this software themselves. Um, What, just for context, what we do is quite new and quite different. We are, we're very rarely in a competitive cell. Um, people are either deciding to do this or not do it. It's not what vendor they're going to choose. Do
2: you know what, Ollie? Just to nudge you a little bit there, I'm in the exact same position right now where I've got a deal that I've got a call later. It's a really early stage. And I've got, for some reason, the head of procurement, the head of finance, the head of strategy, and the CFO joining. I've never spoken to any of these people before apart from the head of finance. And I'm now in a position where I'm like, I need to break you lot up. This call is not going to be productive for you or for me if we all just jump on there and have different agendas, procurement's going to want to know about pricing, finance is going to want to know about this, strategy's going to know about strategy. And I'm going to be sitting there like, I don't have the answers for all of you lot. And we've only got 30 minutes. So there's no way that I'm going to be able to do a presentation which satiates everybody's appetites. So I'm like, a question for you, just to maybe kickstart your, your train of thought again. How do you go about breaking those individuals up so that you can
1: multi-thread, but in a
2: uni-directional path-like way?
1: Yeah, so the, the big thing that I will always do in that situation is make sure I've got a very clear question that is specific yeah. to each of those people. It only needs to be one question, but I need to ensure that I'm extracting something from each person. So what? it's actually more about the answer.
2: Seriously, seriously, good bit of advice. <laughs> hold on, hold the phone for a second. It's, it's
1: often, <laughs> often you, you kind of know what the answer is going to be, right? You've sold into procurement people before, I'm sure. Procurement people all kind of have the same objectives, right? There's going to be nuances amongst it, but the same core objective across what they do, right? Just like our job as as revenue generators is to generate revenue, right? That That is a, the core thing that we have. And that's what, you know, Jack um, will sell to in his role. Sales Loft helps you to sell more, more stuff, basically. I'd actually be keen to get your advice because I, I, I've got like the steroid
0: version of that, actually. It's like my big deal or one of the big deals I've got for my end of month and as of about two hours ago they said like we need to do a final tick box you need to demo to all of revenue management next tuesday at the end of the day so i've got a list of 10 people on on like my calendar i've managed to get like in the next two hours actually after this podcast recording like a call with my champion to help me prep but i'm like how am I possibly gonna get calls with ten people or try my best to figure out where to like hedge my time? I've got an hour with them, like I need to hit home on ten different people that care about ten different challenges, ten different priorities across a revenue management. Like what I don't know, what should I do? Like and I you've, got do and you've got
2: a choreograph and you've got to choreograph a demo which speaks to all of them without it being painful for the other nine while it speaks to the one
1: individually. Yeah. So forecast that deal. There's two things I would do. One is after the call with the champion today, I go and make a video for each of those ten people, which is a very quick introduction to you, and show them something that's re- that's going to be relevant to them that they may not see on the demo or that you may not have the time to focus on. So, one particular feature or one way something exactly works, like which yeah. I I had a mic. Oh, oh, exactly. I mean, look no way are all 10 of those people going to watch that because those 10 people don't know who jack is right they have no trust in you you have built no level of Mm. um no level of relationship with them for them to give up their time but if you make it short enough and engaging enough maybe three or four will open it and then they'll be like oh did you get an email from jack oh yeah i did i've not read it so it can create that not work but if one person does it they then might on the call be like, oh, hey, Jack, you, you showed me that video. I think, can you dive into that a little bit more? And then what you're actually doing is you're taking it away from a pitch into them discovering you. So I would actually make your demo very generic and very simple and very short. Because if you've got half an hour, your demo needs to take five, maximum 10 minutes of that half an hour to allow for questions that are relevant and interesting to them. If you pitch for 29 minutes, you're, everyone's going to be turned off to it. And also
0: I was thinking off the back of that as just like any advice and Jack, this is like your old manager did this really well, Will, who's still at Sales Loft, was like sometimes you've got too many cooks in the kitchen on the demo and like if you've got 10 stakeholders that you're pitching to, you can get railroaded by one of them, just like pounding you with questions and what you saw Will do really well is like, thanks for the question, I've written it down, I'm going to follow up with you after this. Mm-hmm. And it's like a really good way to like keep that flow of the demo going.
1: Um, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Especially I, if you've got an se doing the demo for you and it's out of your hands.
1: Yeah. And it also depends on how much trust that you feel internally as well, Jack, with those people, right, um, or with your champion at the moment. Because if you, if your champion loves, you know, is is trusting enough of you, and they're genuinely going to sign very soon, I would break that up into more than one call. It's like, no, I am not demoing to ten people. Yeah, yeah. Now you don't always have control of that, but if you've proven enough value to that organization, you can stop that from happening. And you can say, you know what, I'll take this three in one and I'll take six in another, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, yeah. We don't have a lot of time on our side. And to be honest, like when I originally had this through, I didn't see it as a a red flag. It's like, this is actually a good sign for me. Like they obviously care about this. You've got 10 people all together at the same hour in in two. Mm. Exactly. A it's funny, time. isn't it?
2: That is great. It's funny, isn't it? There's a lot of reps out there at the moment who are desperate to get a lot of people onto their demos and can't. They're, just, they're what one person who's not got executive access, blah, 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 and sometimes it's the other way around. It's equally as challenging. I love this when we get to the big deal therapy stage of the podcast.
0: Yeah, and Oli, okay, let's go back to the deal with this one, you know, because this this was like, you had a unique case in this, but you needed to split up the two people that were building this project internally and turn them from appreciate what you've done, let me show you how we could do
1: it better. Talk to us. Yeah. Um it's a really interesting one um because we are sat very much in the category creation phase. Like I said, we don't we are not typically in a competitive sell environment. So for someone to be invested in this enough to be building their own software means that strategically the investment is incredibly strong, not just from a monetary perspective um, in terms of the investment that they're making, but the mindset of the organization. Um, you know, if you think of, you think of marketing, you've got all your traditional channels. Yeah. Go and chuck a load of money into Google AdWords and chuck a load of money into Meta and do this and do, you know, it's kind of like the playbook um, and you just, you know, move the, 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 um, dials around a little bit from a from a monetary spend perspective. But if you're already invested that much, it, it tells me a couple of things. One is your organization is prime for change. Your organization has the ability to make decisions to change, which is great and is very rare at an enterprise level. And two, you've got the skills and expertise to understand what the opportunity is because you're already working on this project. You have spent So much time building your knowledge and your business case to go to a CFO, a CEO, whoever say, Hey, can I have lots of money to create something new that no one else is doing? Like you have got to know your shit very, very well in order to be able to do that. So that, that gave me the confidence that I'm going from, instead of this, this sell of concept of why you should invest in your advocates and why you should invest in social commerce which is a lot of what we would typically do. I'm actually now talking about the cost of inaction because they know how great this is and they're already doing it on a manual basis and they're building a platform to automate all of this. So sorry, you've got four years left to go. Right, what, let's show you what that four years of inaction is gonna cost you. Let's show you how much money you're paying over the next four years to make it happen. Oh, more than I'm going to charge you. Awesome. Also, I now have an infrastructure.
0: And do you know what do you know what strikes me so critical about that? I was gonna say, do you know what strikes me so critical about that, Ollie? You put that message to the CEO and that they they excuse my French, they fucking care about solving that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when it's such a core pillar of your business and you're making such an investment, sometimes you have to say, yeah, got it wrong, or there is a better opportunity. It's not, they got it wrong. They even had a deck that said no other platform can do what we want to do, which which is great, (laughs) but like, it's it's just, they didn't know about us, right? If they started researching today, they would have found us. I'm pretty confident of that. Um, but this is obviously like two years ago when they started this project, two and a half years ago, um, when we were a very different business to, to where we are today. So I think that 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 cost of inaction and then not just the cost of inaction, but the fact that they could get to market with this very quickly in comparison. Yeah,
2: you're moving. You're moving time horizon this way and this way at the same time. Exactly. Your business case is sound.
1: But it's still you're still eating it. Right. You're still eating it. They could have. Some, and some businesses would have definitely, you know, kicked Jewel out and said, leave us alone and don't come back. And some people would have done that, but this is a very progressive organization that really understood the opportunity. Um, So yeah, it was an interesting one. Do you think, okay, this is
0: interesting, and this is Jack, this is not something that we've touched on in like ages. Do you think you were lucky that this brand thought progressively or do you think that your business case for cost of inaction was strong enough for them to can the project which one do you think
1: i don't think it's one or the other because one leads to two so the fact that they were they are brave and they're open is why they were doing this in the first place so selling jewel on cost of inaction is not always the best well most of the time it isn't the best way to sell jewel because they don't have an idea, the buyer doesn't have an idea of what the inaction actually is because they're already spending their marketing dollars somewhere else and getting a positive return. So you're talking conceptually about, oh, you're getting a three X ROI here, take that money away and give it to us and we'll give you a five X. Well, that's already a guaranteed three X return. We're not guaranteed, but they know it's gonna happen because it happened last year and it happened the year before and it happened the year before that, right? It's the same with us with our own money, you know, and and interest rates and, you know, it depends on how risky you want to be. We're And we're also in a world where marketing budgets are shrinking all the time, particularly as a percentage of total revenue. So marketing leaders are, have got less to work with and often bigger targets. So that cost of inaction is quite difficult when you're talking about something so conceptual. However, if a business is already doing it or your biggest competitor is doing it, and doing really well out of it, then it starts to make sense. And this is where, as the development of a business, with our case studies now and our referenceability, we can talk about cost of inaction a lot more. Whereas back then, a year ago, we couldn't as much. Ollie, that was a
2: very, very eloquent academic way of explaining what is a very complex part of a business case when you're trying to develop a business case for cost of inaction. Because it's really hard to explain to somebody how to quantify cost of inaction and to validate it back to a prospect without sounding like you're fear-mongering or you're plucking numbers out of thin air or you're trying to say that a baby's ugly. Cost of inaction is a really hard thing to try and say to somebody, but to use social proof case studies to validate the cost of spend and also improve the ROI on a guaranteed ROI that they've already got while doing it confidently, and I'm assuming quite diplomatically, is a really hard thing to do. You explain that very well. so
1: oh, Thanks yeah <laughs> look, I, look, I, I do performance calculators for clients I could put any odd numbers on there you know you could I could yeah yeah exactly like exactly. you know i could say right this is our best program and if you you know if you meet our best program you're going to make this much money and no one would believe it because it's our best program for a reason in terms of the ROI the ROI is silly on that program it doesn't it doesn't mean but it doesn't mean anything to them right it's like well, What if we're not as good as your best client? You know, you've got 70 or programs running, that's one. So it's like, actually, I'm going to show you what a bang average program is going to look like. Because for you to make the decision to turn off one tap, to turn this one on, it's got to be realistic. It's got to be exciting enough to make the decision, but it's got to be realistic enough so that they actually do believe it as well, right?
2: Yeah, that's why it's interesting that you went from 3x ROI on current spend to only 5x ROI in this like, future state, because you could have gone like 500x ROI. Like, <laughs> but obviously no one, no one buys that. Uh, that's really interesting. And I'm assuming at that point was when you used like the, the size of the prize. This isn't just a shiny thing for me or a shiny thing for you. This is a real good business opportunity for both of us. Let's
1: talk. Exactly we moved pretty quickly through this process. Um, you know, I, I love to talk about the impulse curve and time the right time to close. I base a lot of what I do on that and a lot of my training and the impulse was so high. it was like, let's go, let's make this happen now. Um, we, we didn't do our typical sales process with this deal. It actually all happened really quickly. It was our biggest deal at the time. Um, by a lot. Um, And yeah, it happened very, very quickly. So it's like, okay, let's get down to business. How are we actually going to go about this? Let's get tech involved. Let's make sure it works. Let's get procurement involved. Send me your 300 page MSA and we'll start negotiating and we'll start to do all of these activities in the background. um, Because you are closed right in in, from the mindset perspective, you want to do this.
0: Ollie,
1: impulse curve
0: elaborate what's that I've not and then, i was
1: thinking the same thing that's got me set up quite quite okay up. cool so the impulse curve is quite simple it's basically two axis and one is impulse and one is time okay and whatever buying decision you are making you have a line at which you will buy okay now for me if it's um if it's i don't know buying a pint at the pub right my line is quite low to the ground because i'm going to the pub i'm going to buy a beer so my impulse to buy that only gets lower it's very (laughs) low not when you have a kid it's very different jack um but but yeah my impulse is a simple decision for me to make okay i make it very quickly i don't need to be massively impulsive, and i feel really embarrassed that i've used beer as an example but hopefully that makes sense when you are investing into something much bigger so let's say you're buying a house as an individual right of course you can get excited about things but there's so much more that goes into making that decision that actually your buying line is far far higher so impulse needs to be built over time i wish i had the graph on screen it looked really good impulse needs to be built over time to get above the buying line and that's when you need to close someone If you go to try, if you go and view a house and within eight seconds of walking in the door, the estate agent goes, do you want to buy it? You'd say no, because you haven't had enough impulse built yet. Your buying line is way too high. Whereas you do your first viewing, then you go home, you think about it some more. You look at the pictures again, you go through your buying process, second viewing, whatever you need to do, right? And then you're above the buying line. And then the agent says, do you want to make an offer? You make an offer because you're above the buying line. But most salespeople don't understand where someone's buying line is and they definitely, well, not definitely, but a lot of people don't know the right time to ask to sign the deal, to close the deal.
0: So do you know what? And as well, I've worked with colleagues before that are really good at that. And like they, you know, Jack always uses phrase blood in the water, but they'll be like, that they can sense it towards the end of the call and quite satirically will be like, who gets the sign?" I've seen deals like big deals or things at the end. You, you can sense that they're keen for it and they'll be like, okay, cool, cool. Let's go, let's go, let's sign it. And the deal will be done in two days. I'm like, it almost comes off as slightly aggressive, but like knowing this like as a curve, it's like they just have that natural instinct to go like, cool, if you're keen, let's just do it now then. What are we waiting for?
1: Exactly. And as soon as they get off the call with you, the impulse starts to drop because they come off the call. I'll come off this podcast to loads of emails, loads of slacks, whatever. My focus has gone away from what you and I have just been talking about. So therefore you start to move on to other things. So impulse starts to drop. As soon as you get off the call, they are less interested in what you had to say, unless they then go and talk about it internally. And then it drops. And then a few days later, they have an internal meeting to talk about you. And then it rises again but you don't send the email at the right time. You don't book the call at the right time. It drops again. And then you try and close them after an elongated sales process. They've not been above the line for ages.
2: Oh, this is
1: seriously good. Yeah, this is... Time
2: kills deals.
1: Time, yeah, time yeah, That's, that's the,
0: the
2: catchphrase of the impulse curve. Yeah, it's
0: time kills deals. Like if you're waiting, if you're, and as well, like you, we sit in our meetings and uh, Coralie, one of the managers, she always says like, why do you book next steps like next week? Like, why are you not asking it for it tomorrow? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, that should be your first point of call. And I've started to do that in demos, and I'm like, are you free tomorrow? Like, are you free this afternoon? Mm. Yep. Like, can I come see you in person? Like, well, can you come to my offices and try and, like, really
1: build momentum? You know, but
0: anyway, we're, we're, we're at a time of, like, Ellie, Any, if you've got more to add, then we've got a final couple of questions.
1: Um, the only thing I'd say is go and look at your pipeline. There are deals that have been in your pipeline for months that are never going to close.
0: Mm. It's you, Ollie. <laughs> <me>. I'm joking
1: <laughs> but they, they won't because they're way too, below. you've got to start again because they're below the impulse, they're below the luck buying line it's going to be very difficult to get them back up now there's a reason why I haven't said yes to you yeah Ollie, we've got
0: a lot, final couple of questions, yeah. I love this, it's been great What's, what, what skill do you think has made you an effective sales person?
1: um i think for me and i know it's a real cop-out and it sounds a bit like david brent but it's being able to talk to all sorts of different people on their level and that is almost a direct quote from the office but it's true (laughs) it is absolutely true now when you think of that what i don't just mean is your communication style i don't just mean your character I mean, your ability to understand their challenges in advance before you get on the call, knowing what they're gonna say before they get on the call. Obviously, of course, communicating in a way, mirroring them, you know, I, I always use the analogy of don't be sat across the table from someone, be sat next to them. You know, that kind of idea of 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 them building that trust in you. Like I said, like you said at top of the call, I spent two years doing door-to-door sales. I learned everything, almost everything that I know about selling from that job. And it's because one minute you're talking to someone in a mansion and the next minute you're talking to someone in a studio flat in like different suburbs. And, you know, like the the ability to meet and interact with as many different types of people as possible and really learn from them, really understand them. is I think that's my that's what's helped me the most in my career, for sure.
2: I was going to say I never did door to door sales, but I did do. A form of door-to-door sales, i.e., recruitment. I did it for four years, and I learned more in that four years of recruitment than I did in working in software. The strategy and tactics of selling deals I learned in software sales, but like the actual hardcore reflexes of selling, I learned from hitting phones and speaking to 150 people a day on repeat, every different type of person, listening to people's stories about their lives, blah blah blah, blah just anticipating how to have human-to-human conversations. All that shit, you can't replace that. It's like should we get a national service doing indoor flights? That's a form of sales.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's really important to do. And, you know, it's, it just gives you the foundations that you, you can't learn that. You, you know, you can learn sales methodologies and you can learn, you know, mm. how to read contract, all this sort of stuff. You can't learn that. you just got to practice it.
0: Yeah, agreed. And last agree. before we finish, what is your favorite memory in your sales
1: career? That's a really, really good question. Uh, I don't know. I've I've actually got one from my door-to-door sales day. So when I started, I was appalling. I was so bad. It was commission only, right? I had no money. I was living in Sydney, horrendous. Um, and it was like 10 to eight at night. I made no sales all day. Start chatting to this guy and kind of right place, right time. but. Uh, I could see he had the the rugby league on in the background. So we just started talking about that. And I didn't pitch him and we just chatted for five minutes. Pizza guy turns out He's like, oh, I only opened the door because I thought you were the pizza guy. Pizza guy turns up, gives me a slice of pizza. I've had the worst day. I've made no money. It's been raining all day. And then after five minutes of chatting away, he's like, so what are you, why are you at my door? And I was like, oh, I'm, you know, getting people to, to donate to this charity. And he was like, I'll sign up for that. And signed up to a regular day. Then his mate turned up and he was like, you got to do this as well. So I made $200. I, it was my best day ever. I made $200 and I got a slice of pizza in the pouring rain at the end of the day. And I'd worked my ass off all day. I'd spoken to a hundred people. And then this guy literally, literally changed my life because I, I was going to quit. I'd had enough. And then I worked out that actually it's not about being great at pitching. It's about talking to people. And learning about, them. I didn't. And like literally, yeah, so that that's a pretty cool experience because most people tell you to fuck off, you know, or not most people, but most people talk to you, you know, you're looking to speak to two or three people a day out of a hundred. And it's a pretty brutal job, particularly when you're like nineteen, twenty on the other side of the world with no experience. Um
0: so yeah, that's You I was meant to that as well. That day
1: could've ended. That day could have ended with
0: you thinking, nah, sales isn't for me and fifteen mm-hmm. years later you're selling. Deals on the no and talking about them on the no big deal podcast.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I love it. I remember it really well.
2: Yeah, I love that story. Anybody who's listening who does door to door sales, go and knock on Ollie's door and ask for a slice of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he owes you one.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, mate. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: thanks, Ollie. That was classmate. That was very, very good.